Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I have to admit that the sermon I wrote and the sermon I thought I was going to write are not the same thing. It surprised me. So this took an unusual turn. And we've been discussing the nature of desire. We've been talking about the role of the Holy Spirit, talking about Romans 8. And we've identified and said that desire ultimately resides in God, that God desires that none would be lost, that God's desire for humanity, his love for humanity is key. And we've said that human desire is a reflection of God's desire. And to miss the fact is to miss the limited role for human sexuality or the erotic. But it also simultaneously acknowledges a place for human desire, but fulfilled uh, in God. And that is that basic human desire points us to God. But this still does not answer how this works. And I think I'm still saying it backwards. Desire, uh, first of all, is the primary concern. It's, you know, in psychoanalysis, but also in the Bible that it talks about in Genesis, that it was the desire for the wrong thing, the wrong tree. Paul says that I did not know what it was to desire. In Romans 7, 7, apart from the command, thou shalt not desire, thou shalt not covet. In psychoanalysis, it is front and center. And I believe that actually in the Bible, the case I'm going to make is that it's the key part of human failure, but it's also the key part of redemption. That our web of experience, conscious and unconscious, Symbolic, that is having to do with language. We can talk about this, but in a way this escapes us, that in some way speech is inadequate to articulate how desire is woven in to the structure of our experience. So if you go for psychoanalysis treatment, the goal is to lead the patient to articulate their desire or to bring them into consciousness. And when you speak it or say it, that in a sense that you bring it into existence. But the problem is that's kind of an unending process. You know, what do you want? Well, that can pose an endless and agonizing question and struggle. Now we know that desire is not like a need which can be met and satisfied. Desire is a constant pressure which both psychology and theology They call it eternal, but they're two very different eternalities. In psychoanalysis, desire is a relation to a lack. That is, it's always something you don't have. If you have it, you don't desire it. And that's the eternality of it. There's no resolution to that. Though the Bible and theology talks about a kind of failed desire, a covetousness or exponential desire, of lack, that, oh, if you get it, that ain't it. But there's also the description of desire as it relates to God. 
And as we said, it's primarily God's own desire. So desire in the Bible takes on this positive eternality. But I've not completed the thought yet. I know this is frustrating, but this is the process that I went through. I may have missed the point. We might think this leaves us desiring God, or as the psalm says, panting after God. And this is the psalm, Psalm 42, and so I'd like to read the psalm, but notice the movement of the psalm. Verse 1, as a deer pants for water, for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. This isn't a happy condition that the psalmist is describing. I think we often describe this or quote this psalm as if this is the way things are supposed to be. But look at the next verse. When shall I come and appear before God? That is, I feel I'm missing out. My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? So he's actually suffering. He's remembering a happier time when he felt the nearness of God. And he's longing for that time. My soul pants for you, God. In verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Here is the happy time. Here is the time he longs for. He longs for this time when he felt the nearness of God. Then verse 7, deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. You know, we talked about the water of life. Here is just being inundated, I believe, with the power of God's presence. Verse 8, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Here is the beauty. I think this is the happy part of the psalm. This period of desire, of panting after God. Of course, when God is absent in our life, this may be the case, but it's an oppressive condition. He feels that God has forgotten him. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And of course, in the Old Testament, this is the worst thing that can happen to you. If God turns his face from you, if God forgets you, if God does not know you, that's a damnable condition. That's an oppressive condition. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? I don't know if you caught it, but we suddenly shifted. I think I was beginning with the wrong question. Our primary desire is not satisfied in what we know, in our knowing, in our recognition. Our primary desire is in being known 
by God and being recognized by God. Maybe just being recognized. You know, a human infant, we know that you can feed them and clothe them and give them everything they need. But if you never pick the child up, the child won't survive. And of course, the ultimate recognition, I think partially it, it can be granted by other people, but ultimate recognition does not come from other people. It comes from God. And so in both psychology and the Bible, this primary desire to be recognized. In the Bible, to be recognized or known by God. And to know of that, to have that assurance, that is the equivalent of salvation. And for God to turn his face away, or God to say, I never knew you. You know, that's Jesus' picture in Matthew 7, 23, that in the judgment scene, he will say to some people, away from me, I never knew you. Even though they're saying, well, wait a minute, we, we did all these wonderful things. We prophesied in your name. We healed in your name. He says, I'll declare I never knew you. And so I think this is the primary movement in redemption, to be known and recognized by God. This has given me great comfort this week. It kind of answered my question Look at 2 Timothy 2.19. It says, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. What a great comfort to be recognized by God. This is Jesus. Jesus says this several times in John. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. And so the idea in the Old Testament is represented. You know, we know there is what is called anthropomorphism, that it's describing God in human terms, the picture of God shining his face upon you. But the idea we get, oh, when God recognizes you, when he shines his face upon you, this is the prayer. And we could repeat this prayer many times in the Psalms. Psalm 67, 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. There's nothing better than that. When God hides his face, you know, it may be a final hiding. It may be a, a kind of act of discipline. It may be a period of difficulty. It's a, a theme, again, of the Psalms. How long will you hide your face from me, God? On the other hand, there's a profound assurance in realizing, you know, this is Psalms 139, that God knows you. He recognizes you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. And so I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. It's not cause for anything other than comfort that God knows you. He knows how you're made. 
You know, Jesus says that God is aware when a sparrow falls, if he cares for a sparrow, how much greater is his love for you? One of Jacques Lacan, and Lacan was a psychoanalyst and kind of a strange guy, so I'm sorry to bring him up, but I think he hit upon a key note here. And it's there in the Bible. He says that after, you know, he spent his life studying the human disease, what's wrong with people? He says, man's desire is the desire of the other. And of course, the, the phrase here can be taken in several ways, and he meant that. He meant it to be kind of ambiguous. The first way, you know, that we've been talking about, that basic desire is to be recognized by the other. Other people, or, you know, I don't think he meant God. I think he was an atheist. It's a little unclear. But it can mean that one's own desire is fulfilled then in this other, or it can mean that one's desire is an imitation of another's desire. Why do you want what you want? Well, because other people want what you want. You know, look, turn a little kid loose, a few kids loose in a room full of toys. What toy do they want? What's the desirable toy? Well, the one that that kid has, right? You know, they go over and bonk one another on the head to get that toy because that's got to be the good one. And so there is that meaning. In the first meaning, all humans want to be desired. All humans want to be loved. All humans want to be recognized. And the second meaning, I believe, and this is not just me, but it's partially tied to the first in that we learn desire. It's mimetic, that is, it's imitated. And it arises from other people. The subject desires what the other desires, or she desires from the perspective of someone else. That is, the qualities of an object are not intrinsic, usually to the object, but they have a vested quality because people desire it. If it's a shiny rock and I pick it up and I show you, you know, you may say, well, that's just nothing. That's just a shiny rock. I'll just throw it away. We say, oh, that's a diamond. Oh, it's good then. I'll keep it. There was a lecture. He actually lectured in Paris on Hegel. And this is an insight that he comes to. That he's saying that the second possibility, the bad desire, is tied to the first possibility. In that imitating another's desire, it's still an attempt at being counted worthy of recognition. To desire what another desires, you know, it goes back to this idea about possessing what is desirable, that you yourself would become desirable. If I got good stuff, maybe people will desire me or like me. And this mediated desire, of course, that's where we go wrong. It can take on a bad eternality in several senses. That is, there's no end of objects. It's not, you know, I got this, it's not that. Or there can be no end of models of desire of other people that desire, well, they desire this. That must be what I want to desire. And since this desire is for what one does not have, it's always for something else. It's exponential. You know, this is the way idolatry is described in the Old Testament. 
The idolatrous scene, I think we often misunderstand. The idol is pictured in pornographic terms in the Old Testament as a kind of building up of desire, not because there's any actual fulfillment of this, but because it's just pure, unfulfillable desire. And so the idol is actually a, an obstacle. And you can't obtain the object represented in that obstacle. And of course, that's often the way that our desires work. If there is an obstacle in the way, oh, that must mean it's really good. That's the way the law works. You know, if you're a little kid and your parents say, don't eat those cookies. Well, those must be very good cookies. Actually, we were talking about this in class. One of the students said when he was a little kid, he was in kindergarten and the teacher, they were cooking applesauce. And the teacher, suddenly somebody knocked on the door and the teacher said, turn to the kids, don't you put your hand on that stove while I'm gone. And he said, as soon as she left, he marched right up and put his hand on the hot stove and burned his hand. We know that's kind of human nature. If it's behind the obstacle of something, then it's made more desirable. Maybe this is, you know, the Oedipal complex. But the idea is that as long as you're unconscious, as long as desire remains unconscious, it's probably going to take on this kind of consumptive tenor. It's going to be a, a kind of desire of lack or impossibility. You're continually climbing a ladder of desire and you never get off the ground. And so what I'm describing gets rid of this bad eternalization of desire. I don't think this is actually possible in psychoanalysis. It requires recognizing the nature of primal human desire. This is what the Apostle Paul names, and this is why I don't think I ever quite understood this. Paul in Galatians says, if anyone loves God, what's more important, the next phrase in Galatians 4.9, he is known by God. Oh, he says, but now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, that is, it's more important not that you know God, but that you're known by God. How can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? To be chosen, to be recognized, to be loved by God. This is the primal desire. It speaks to a reckoning with desire. I don't believe you're going to get there in secular psychoanalysis. But Paul names this as an alternative, a resolution to the world's elementary principle. And isn't this the desire that drives the world? That is, desire is a driving force. We have to recognize that. But in going unnamed, it simultaneously, it orders the world. It creates a kind of consumptive drive. And it's destroying the world. And it will destroy us. And so the most profound assurance, the one that we need most, is this realization. You are known. 
You are loved by God. Let me close with Psalm 139.6. Behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.